This morning we come to Ephesians 1. I'm going to do this as a once-off sermon before I return to my series in the Gospel of Luke. Ephesians 1 verse 15 to 23. And the theme for today's message, Great Prayers to a Great God. Let us go to this God in prayer now. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of the highest praise and honor and glory we can bring, and even higher than we can bring. I come to you dependent as a servant to a king, and ask that you would please use the words of Ephesians 1 and transform our lives slowly but surely into the image of Jesus Christ. For any who is still dead in his trespasses and sins, I pray that you would remove a hardened heart, a heart of stone, and give a sensitive heart of flesh, a heart that will submit to your Lordship and obey by your Spirit. Amen. Imagine with me for a moment a child standing in front of a king. And the king says to the child, you can ask me for anything. And imagine then that the child answers and says, please may I have a sucker. Or please may I have a toy. What a foolish thing to ask. That child doesn't know that he can ask for the kingdom. That child doesn't know that he can even ask the king to adopt him as his own son. And the same with us spiritually. Sometimes we get stuck. It's like we, we get in a rut. Uh, we get stuck in asking for little things when we pray, when we come to the king of kings. We ask for little things like money or health or work or earthly success or we pray for our child's rugby game or netball match or we pray, pray, pray for our exams because we don't know what God is actually offering us. And so what Ephesians uh, 1 teaches us in verse 15 to 23 is pray big. Let us read Ephesians 1 verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
So as we come to this, this passage, the very first um, lesson I want to draw from the passage, if we say that we should pray big, how do we do this? Well, you pray without ceasing, or you pray continually, and you pray with thanksgiving. That's in verse 15 to 16. So let's say again you as a child, and <coughs> excuse me, what you what you typically find with a small child is that child is dependent upon the parent for everything. So that child will ask the parent for food. Will you feed me? He's dependent on the child to bath, to go to the toilet, to fasten his or her shoelaces, to get something from the shelf because it's too high for the kid, to get dressed, to cross the road. Anything and everything that child needs the parent. And so that really shows if the child's dependent and asks for help, it shows that he's got a great view of his parent. Because he knows he needs help. And for us, if we want to show that we have a great view of God, we must pray continually. We must ask him for help with anything and everything. And so Paul tells us in this passage, he shows the example where Paul says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks, remembering you in my prayers. Paul doesn't cease praying. Paul continues praying because he knows God will answer his prayers. And when God does answer, then he gives thanks for those answers. You find this often in Paul's letters. You can just read in the very few, few verses of each, a few verses of each letter, you'll see Paul saying, I do not cease to pray for you. I do not cease to give thanks. And so now thanks God. He thanks God that he has saved these Ephesians. Uh, verse 15, for this reason. What reason? Well, verse 3 to 14. God has saved them. And then he even goes on and says, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love toward all the saints. In other words, he thanks God that he has saved the Ephesians, that these Ephesians believe, these Ephesian Christians, Ephesus is a town, a city, that they believe in Christ and that they love other believers. That's the proof that they really save. They love other Christians. And so the same for us. Thanksgiving is a mark of great prayers. That's a characteristic. That's a trait of great prayers. Because it shows that we acknowledge that God is almighty and that God is good and that he answers prayer. So we thank him for his work, for his goodness, for his answers to prayer. Do you pray with thanksgiving? And by that I don't mean you pray and then you end your prayer with these words, we pray this with thanksgiving in Jesus' name, amen. That's not what I mean. I mean, do you devote a time, a set time, during your prayer time, during your quiet time, for thanksgiving? And you won't do that if you have a small view of God. Because then you'll think, if you have a small view of God, you'll think that it's your money that helped you out. It's your knowledge or your talents or your skills or the contacts you have. You know people in high places and that is what helped you. And you won't give thanks to God. So I want to encourage you to get a great view of God so that when he does answer your prayer, you will give thanks to him alone. And hopefully by the end of this sermon today, you will have a great view of God. And then it, it'll, also, it'll also help... Uh, that if you have this great view of God, it'll help you to not only pray for yourself, but for others. 
in verse 16. I pray for you. I don't cease to give thanks for you. Why do I say a great view of God will help you in that chapter 6 verse 18 also, praying for all the saints? The reason I say so is because if you have a great view of God, you'll realize God cannot only answer your prayers, He can, he can fulfill the desires and the needs of every single believer. Easy. It's easy for God to do so. Chapter 3, verse 20. God is able to do abundantly more than all that we ask or think. Far more abundantly than all than we, that we ask or think. Alright, so that's the first command. If we want to pray big prayers. Second command is pray God-centered prayers. And that is in verse 17. I remember in... Oh, it must have been around 2005 or so... A lady came to our church, and probably the first time I visited her house, she told me <laughs> that she's part of a Bible study group, and she was quite shocked, because one of the ladies said, no, your prayers must be specific. You can't just ask God, Lord, please provide, I need a car. Um, you must ask the Lord, please, Lord, I want a blue Toyota Corolla, but not a light blue one, a metallic blue one. It must be a 1600 GLE or whatever they call them. And then God will give whatever you ask, she said. Now, when we hear those kinds of things, we know that's prosperity churches, that's prosperity theologies, false theologies, false teaching. But, but aren't we like that often? Don't we actually pray in the same way? Because... Our prayers very often are man-centered and not God-centered. So all our prayers, our prayers are concerned with what we want and what we need. Where Paul, you see Paul, he has God-centered prayers. His, his prayers center and focus on God. So first of all, for instance, in verse 17, it's uh, the Trinity. His prayers are about the Trinity. He's focused on the triune God. In verse 17, you see him praying to the Father to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he prays to the Father, and to this Father, he calls him the Father of glory. All glory uh, belongs to God. And he refers to him as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the fact that Paul speaks of Jesus as our Lord Jesus, he refers to him as Lord, by that he is, he's implying that Jesus is equal to the Father, that Jesus himself is God. As you read in John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Or Jesus himself says, I and the Father are one. Or Philippians 2 verse 6 says that Jesus existed in equality to God. Or Hebrews 1 verse 3 is the exact imprint of God's nature and the glory uh, of God. But the fact that he also, so in one sense he says he's equal because he calls him the Lord Jesus, verse 17. But then he also says that the Father is the God of Jesus, implying that Jesus is truly and fully man. And then Paul continues, he asks, in verse 17 he says, he prays that the Father will give us a spirit of wisdom, that he will give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. In other words, that, that the Holy Spirit will teach us to know the Father in verse 17. So can you see the Trinity in verse 17? You've got the Father, you've got the Lord Jesus, that's the Son, and then you've got the Holy Spirit who gives us wisdom and reveals the Father to us and teaches us the knowledge of God. 
You also see it in chapter 2, verse 18, the Trinity. Uh, Through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. There you have the Son, the Spirit, and the Father. So our normal way of praying is we pray to the Father, through Jesus, who brings us to God, the Father, uh, by the Spirit who works in us to pray. So may I ask you the question, do you, do you start your prayers like that? Are you in awe at the greatness of this God to whom you are praying? Or do you just start, it's like you, you begin with a, a bag full of words, just pouring out your petitions, rushing into the presence of God like God is this giant Santa Claus in heaven, and you just bring your grocery list and ask what you want. Now, by that I don't mean that God doesn't give us gifts, but what I do mean is, don't ask, don't ask for dung if God offers you a kingdom. And actually, he offers you more than a kingdom. He offers you himself. And you've already, you've already received the Spirit. You've already received God through by his Spirit when you believed in Jesus, verse 13. Uh, Paul says, in him... In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. All right, so you've already received the Spirit, but now the Spirit gives you a deeper knowledge. Uh, God gives you this deeper knowledge of himself by the Spirit. When you ask him for it, verse 17, he asks that the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him. And he, he, God doesn't reveal himself to you. He doesn't show himself to you just so you can be theologically sharper. You can know more of the Bible when the Jehovah's Witness crosses your path or a Muslim. Then you can argue with them about God because you know some of the Bible. You know good theology. No, that's not why God shows himself and reveals his knowledge to you in verse 17. That's not why God wants you to know him. He wants you to know him personally in a personal relationship so that you can live with wisdom. As verse 17 says, you can live in the right way in the knowledge of God. So in other words, if you, if you have the knowledge of God, if you know God truly and you know him with wisdom, then you'll know you need to flee sin because God is holy. You'll know that you needn't fear anyone or anything because God is always with you. If you know God, you'll know he's almighty and therefore he can help you through any crisis. Number three, third command, we're going to pray big, then pray that you will understand the hope of heaven. That's in verse 18a and b, so the first and second part of verse 18. So let me tell you about Jerry, he lives on the street, and he tells you that he, that he owns a, a palace in Sweden, and he's not lying to you, but... That's all you know. He never talks about the palace. He never describes the palace. He's making no plans to get back to his palace in Sweden. Uh, but all he does is he gathers old pieces of cloth just to patch his tent, the tent he lives in next to the street or on the pavement. You know, many Christians are like that. They tell you they have a home in heaven, but... They don't talk about it much. They don't talk about it in their prayers. They don't pray about it. They don't think about it much. They don't discuss it with other Christians. They don't sing about it. They don't listen to sermons about heaven. Why? Why is heaven not really part of our thoughts and preaching and songs and so on? 
Is it because we have this vague image of heaven, this vague idea about heaven? Most people, and even Christians think, Christians think about heaven as this bright white light where you can't really see anything, it's too bright. And they think of spirits just gliding around or sitting on clouds and you sing forever and ever and ever. Now what Paul is praying here is that God will help these Christians to have a clear idea of heaven. That God will open their spiritual eyes, the eyes of their hearts, as Paul calls it in verse 18. That God will open their spiritual eyes so that a whole new world will open for them. A whole new world. They will, they will see things in a different light. As Christians, Paul is praying that we'll realize what heaven is like. He says that you may know what, what is the hope to which he has called you, the hope of heaven. What are we looking forward to? What's coming to this world? And... That we will expect a new heavens and a new earth where everything will be right and good. There will be no sin and no sickness and no pain and no death. And when Jesus comes, he will raise our bodies from the graves and he will glorify our bodies. We'll have new bodies that can never sin anymore and can never get sick or old or die, as 1 Corinthians 15 teaches us. And on this new earth, according to Revelation 21 and 22, we will work and serve and eat and we'll make friends and we'll sing and we'll honor God and worship God in everything we do, not just in singing. And then except for the fact that Jesus will be there and our fellow Christians will be there, there will also be angels and trees and mountains and rivers and birds and animals. Is that something you're looking forward to? Well, if it is, let the second coming of Jesus be a regular part of your prayers. And ask the Holy Spirit to give you a better understanding, a better grasp of this. Verse 18, that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened, that the Holy Spirit, verse 17, may give you this knowledge, verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And that will help you. That you won't feel like someone in despair, absolute despair, just because we're in a world full of suffering. No, you'll have hope. Verse 18, the hope to which he has called you. Now that will also help you that you're not like Jerry, who just, lifts, Jerry, who just lives for the moment. Jerry, I spoke about just now, the guy on the street. He just lives for the moment. No, rather you look forward. You look forward to the second coming of Jesus and to the new earth. Fourth command, if we're going to pray big, is pray that you will understand God's riches in the church. That's verse 18c, the last part of verse 18. Now, in Western culture, everything is about the individual. It's all about you, all about the individual. And that, unfortunately, especially during lockdown and COVID, that is how the church has become. So it's all about the individual. So it's for many people, and even people who call themselves Christians, fellowship is not important anymore. Uh, Acts 2 verse 42, that the early Christians devoted themselves to fellowship. Being with other believers is not important. Um, being at Christian gatherings is not important. The gathering of the church, of God's people, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. It's not as important anymore. And according to these people, as long as you just read your Bible and pray and, and watch sermons online, that's fine. But what, what would you have done in the early church? In the first century, no one had Bibles only the preacher had a Bible. 
a scroll that he would read from? What would you have done? You would have had no Bible. How, how do you think a marriage, for instance, how can a marriage work if you treat marriage like you treat the church, like many people treat the church, so you've got this online relationship with your wife? How's that going to work? So why do we treat God that way? Why do we treat the church that way? God wants you to understand his riches in the church. And it's necessary for you and I to pray for this. As verse 18c says, that we may understand the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. His inheritance in the church. God wants you to understand that so that the Holy Spirit can show you. Pray for this, that the Holy Spirit will show you how many believers there are. How big the church really is on the earth and throughout history and in heaven. God doesn't want you to think, oh, the church is really small just because you're the only Christian at your work. You're the only Christian in your school, your class, or in your family. And now you think the church is small. Or you think the church is small just because you belong to a small congregation or there aren't many Christians in your town or in your country. Rather see the riches of God's inheritance in the church, in the saints, as it says in verse 19 or 18. See that God has given the church, he's given millions of sinners as a gift to his son that he would save them. He's given the nations to Christ. And one day all the nations will come and they will worship before Jesus Christ. God said to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Or Psalm 2 verse 8, the father says to the sons, ask, the son, to Jesus, ask of me, I will give nations as your inheritance. Psalm 22, 20, um, Seven And Psalm 86 verse 9 says that all the nations will come and they will worship before the Lord. Daniel 7, Christ receives all the nations as an inheritance. John 17 verse 2 is the Father has given him a people and he will give them eternal life. From every tribe, tribe and language and people and nation, they will worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 5 and same in Revelation 7 verse 9 and 10. Last command, number 5. If we're going to pray big, we must pray. Pray that you will understand your resources in Christ. Verse 19 to 23. Now, some Christians, they are like a hobo who doesn't know that he is the heir. He is, he is one who's going to inherit a 400 million rand estate. And we, we like that tramp sometimes, you know. We feel like there's no hope and we want to throw, the, throw in the towel because we don't really understand how great the power of God is that works in us and works through us. The power of God that works in and through us is the same power by which he raised his son Jesus Christ from the dead and exalted him to the highest position. In the universe, verse 19, Paul prays that they may understand what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So by this power, God raises us also to a new life in Christ, Ephesians 2 verse 1 and verse 5. By this power, God gives us strength so we can preach the gospel to unbelievers and they can be saved. 
to unbelievers so that they repent. Chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse 7 of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. All power will come upon us. Power will come upon you. The power of the Spirit, says Jesus in Acts 1, and you'll be my witnesses. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The message we bring is a message of power, and God gives us the power to evangelize. Don't be afraid. By this power, we can overcome our fear of evangelism and persecution. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Suffer by the power of God, says 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 and 8. By this very same power, we can climb the highest peaks of the mountain of God's love and we can have a deeper experience of God's love. Chapter 3, verse 16, Paul prays that we will be strengthened with power through His Spirit. And then he continues that we may understand the love of God. Verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So there we are, the power of God that works in us. Verse 20, he prays according to the power at work within us. By this power, we can stand against the devil and stand against temptation and we can conquer. Chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says that we fight not against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle, but verse 10 says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might, God's power. By the power and authority of God, we can trample on serpents, he says, not meaning literal snakes, but meaning Satan who is like a serpent. We can conquer him. By this power, we can find hope in a world that is without hope. Romans 15 verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. By this power, we can withstand all the trials and difficulties of this life. We can triumph. We can persevere through them. God's power is made perfect in weakness. His power is upon us so we can stand through trials. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then in Colossians 1, verse 11, Paul prays that you may be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. By this power that Paul speaks of in verse 19 of our text, by this power we can confront sin and we can exercise church discipline. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 19 to 21. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 4 and 5 says, By the power of God we must exercise discipline. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 1 to 4. By the power of the risen Christ we can confront sin. And so some of you need to confront a fellow Christian or a friend that is busy sinning. God gives you that power. And by this power, we can disciple believers so that they become mature. We bring them to maturity. Colossians 1 verse 28. How? Verse 29. By His power, His energy that powerfully works within me. And then we can live righteously through this power. God has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness through His power power. 
Second Peter 1 verse 3. All right, so you get the idea of verse 19. God works that same power that he worked in Christ. He also works in us. Question. How do we get this power? Well, mainly through prayer. Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Verse 19, that you may know what is the greatness, immeasurable greatness of his power. We pray for this power. Chapter 3, verse 20, Paul prays. God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. We pray for this. Jesus said if we pray, we can move mountains. Whatever we ask the Father in his name, he will do. And the prayer of a righteous person has great power, says James 5, verse 16. You see, praying people are strong people because they are not relying on their own resources. They are relying on the power of God through Christ. They see Jesus as the king sitting at the Father's right hand where he rules in heaven, verse 20. He was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father. That's from Psalm 110 verse 1. Now, Jesus obviously has always ruled and reigned as God, but the Father has now exalted him also as man, where he is above every authority and power, every ruler uh, in heaven and on earth and in hell. He's above every name in heaven and earth and under the earth in this life and in the next life, verse 21, far above, Christ is exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And you find this in various passages where Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Christ is the ruler over all the evil spirits and over all the angels and heavenly beings and over all the universe. Verse 22, God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So Jesus is the one who rules as head, who rules as the sovereign king. He rules for the good of the church. And that goes for the church, even when the church, when Christians are persecuted or when it's COVID-19 or when in world during uh, world politics that are a mess, or in temptations, or natural disasters, or war, or death. Everything in heaven and on earth, verse 22, is under the feet of Jesus Christ. And he rules over it for the good of the church. Jesus works all things together. For the good of his people. Romans 8 verse 28. And that sovereign rulership. That sovereign headship. Of Jesus over all things. And all things under his feet. Verse 22. Also means that Islam. And communism. And atheism. And evolution. And black lives matter. And Hinduism. And Buddhism. And animism. And Judaism. And the cults, and the prosperity gospel, and Satan, and demons, and death, and every other enemy will bow the knee before Jesus Christ.
Some of them will do it in this life, and they will be forgiven. And others will be forced to bow the knee on the judgment day, and they will be crushed. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And in Psalm 2, some will be crushed, and some will bow willingly and kiss the Son. And whichever way that may be, <clears throat> the point is this, that the foot of Jesus Christ will be on the neck of his enemies. Verse 22. And God put all things under his feet. Psalm 110 verse 1. 1 Corinthians 4, 15 verse 24 to 27. 1 Peter 3, 22. All those verses say the same thing. So don't think for a moment if Jesus is sovereign over his enemies, don't think for a moment that Jesus really wants to save the world, but he can't. Just like Jesus brought communism to a fall in Eastern Europe, he did it in a moment. So in a moment, in the wink of an eye, the blink of an eye, Jesus can bring Islam and every other false religion and philosophy and ideology. He can let it fall by speaking a single word. And so let us pray with this mindset when we pray for our enemies and when we share the gospel to set people free from the power of sin and Satan and when we share the gospel and pray that God will destroy the works of the evil one, let us do it with this mindset that God can wipe them out in the blink of an eye. He can convert his enemies in the blink of an eye. He can destroy false religion in the blink of an eye. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 to 5. Though we walk in the body, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, meaning every false argument, every false religion. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. So the weapons we use is the gospel and prayer. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And with Jesus on our side, Satan cannot conquer. The victory already belongs to Jesus. He has already conquered. And he will help us to fulfill the great commission. The great command that Jesus gave that we must make disciples of all the nations, we must evangelize, we must bring disciples into the kingdom of God, that great command will be, will be fulfilled successfully because all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Christ. Now question then, why does that not happen? Why does it not happen that we see many conversions? It seems to us when we look even at Kempton Park, as if Satan has the last word. Well, it's not God stopping us. Jesus is not standing in our way. The reason why these things aren't happening is not because the enemy is stronger than Christ. The reason is because we are self-confident. We have little faith. We are prayerless. We are not very passionate and zealous in our evangelism. And we are ignorant of the power that works in us. It's like Jesus said to the disciples, the reason you couldn't 
have this spiritual victory is because of your little faith and prayerlessness. And so let us confess our disobedience and let us come to him anew through prayer and let us look to him once again. He who fills heaven and earth, verse 23, he fills all in all. Jeremiah 23, verse 24, he fills heaven and earth. Chapter 4, verse 10 of Ephesians, the same. He fills all things. And let us ask him to fill us with himself. Chapter 3, verse 16. In our inner being through the Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 19, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Let us pray that. And the reason God, or, or the, the way God does that rather, the way God does that is not mainly in your bedroom and the place he does it. It's not mainly in your bedroom where you're busy praying. That's part of it. But it's mainly where you're part of the church. Chapter 3, verse 21. To him be glory in the church. Jesus loves the church. He loves being with his church. He loves being with his people because he's the head of the church. The church is his body. Chapter 1, verse 22. God put all things under Christ's feet, gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. He even speaks of the church as the fullness of God or the fullness of Christ. And that doesn't mean Jesus needs us because he doesn't need our worship or our service. Acts 17.25, he can do without it. He doesn't need us at all. He's not dependent upon us, but he chose and he chooses to be incomplete without us. Just like a head is incomplete without the body, so Jesus chooses, I will not be complete without my church. You know, in, in, in the light of this, it just, it just blows my mind that some Christians don't care if they're involved in the church or not. They don't, they don't stand in awe. They don't marvel at Jesus as the head of the church. They don't understand the resources that we have in Christ. And to them, he's still just, he's, he's like little Jesus, dear little Jesus. And that's why their prayers are small. They, pray, they don't pray big prayers. May I ask you, how do you see Jesus? Because the way you see Jesus will determine how big your prayers are. And if he will pray for eternal things, eternal things of his kingdom or if you will just ask him for good health and for a job let's pray Lord God I do pray give us these big things that we heard of this morning please hear us in this Amen